0: Grit for sure is perseverance. It's never giving up and it's never doing it alone. That's how I think about grit.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Steve, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: I start all of these off the same. I am not feeling particularly adventurous on this one, so I'm gonna do the same thing that I do with every guest, which is read your background back to you, and then we can use that as a jumping off point to kick this thing off, deal?
0: Yeah, sounds like a great plan.
1: Cool, okay, so you got your bachelor's in engineering from Texas A&M. You then went to BMC, you were the vice president of sales for almost eight years from 98 to 06. I assume you didn't start as that. Then you went to Workbrain where you became the senior vice president of sales, did that for a year. Bluecoat, you had a really nice run at Bluecoat for five years from 07 to 12, where you were the VP of uh, field operations in the Americas for three and a half years. Then you moved to somewhere in Asia Pacific and you were the VP of field operations there for a year and a half. And then four and a half years at Apogee, I think revenue was around 30-ish million when you started there. You had a really nice run, four and a half years from 2012 to 16. And you were the senior vice president of sales for three and a half and an advisor for one year. Then you went to DataStax, president for four years at DataStax. Then Splunk for a year and a half. And now as of what, five months ago, you are the CRO of Okta. What did I screw up?
0: Yeah, 15 weeks. That's how long I've been here.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. All right, so I have a couple questions for you. About your background, and then let's get into it actually I'll start with what was your first ever job
0: Wow, my first ever job well, I've always done odd jobs you know I was always trying to make money somehow I didn't grow up with a lot and and my my grandfather, who was an Italian immigrant, taught me hard work and uh, and work ethic so I always I always liked to work and never really had a problem working so whether that was mowing lawns as a kid that was probably my first job or you know, busting tables in a restaurant, even before I was 16 and old enough, I think I may have fudged my application <laughs> to, uh, to get a job because I needed to make some money. So work has always been in my blood and probably in my, in my lineage somewhere as well.
1: Do you think that you worked particularly hard to make money because you didn't come from money?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, you, you, you kind of grow up around that. I go back to my grandfather that I mentioned, you know, is the Italian immigrant in New York City. And, you know, he stopped going to school after getting an eighth grade education because he had to provide for his family. And that's just kind of what you do. You've, you know, lifting 50 pound bags of flour and, and he just, he worked his whole life and ended up providing a great life for his family. And so I always kind of looked at that as the model, like it wasn't about having things. It was just what you do and how you work hard and provide for others
1: i guess we're going down a rabbit hole already but were there key things that as you were growing up around your grandfather that you viewed work as a very positive trait in the sense that like when i grew up my family i don't think particularly loved their job i think they got a lot out of their job And I think it obviously gave them a platform to like escape from Iran and that gave them upward economic mobility, which changed their life. But I don't think they loved their job. Was it different in your house?
0: Going back to my grandfather, I think it was a, it was personal satisfaction and a day's work and getting satisfaction that you accomplished something. My father was a, was a serial entrepreneur, right? So I was always kind of watching him. He wasn't in tech, it was way before tech was cool. But he was always starting businesses of some kind, and I, I, you know, just seeing him get satisfaction out of creating and building probably had an influence on me as well throughout my life.
1: Not to get too personal, but did you watch him fail? When you say serial entrepreneur, what was that like?
0: It was hard. I mean, look in, in the reality of it, it, it it was tough on my family as well. Yeah, my father started and lost businesses. There were times where it had economic hardship on our family and. Yeah, those things shape your life as well. Some people would wonder why I ever tried to go do a startup because the amount of risk that's in startups. But I think I take calculated risks because of my experience of what my father went through and also the benefit of what he what he showed me was possible.
1: The question that used to get posed to me a lot in interviews was, do you love to win or do you hate to lose? And I think there's generally, I guess, a right answer, but my answer is I hate to lose. And I, I say that because I know what losing feels like personally, like I know what it feels like to run out of gas on the side of the freeway over and over again, just feeling helpless. I know that feeling and I never want to experience that. And so, you know, money wasn't always a way out for that feeling of scaredness and, and loss.
0: No, I totally relate to that. There, there's an element of, I don't need a lot, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of people in tech that, that we've been very, very fortunate to earn great livings, and I know a lot of people that spend everything they make, and I happen to save most of what I make <laughs> because good of that. You. Uh, you know that same experience. So
1: you had a good run to start. You started as an engineer, and then you went to BMC. What did you start as in that role?
0: Yeah, what's well, interesting, you know. So you're reading off my LinkedIn profile. What's not on my LinkedIn profile is I actually worked for United Technologies, right? So I started my career doing design build work for clean rooms and manufacturing facilities is such an amazing it's really an amazing job because you could take concepts on paper and then it would take months for things to get built and then it would show up It was a very tangible job you could go from ideation to physical creation cool job but uh, late in the 90s you know that was when the tech boom was really taking off and i saw all these people in tech at i was living in austin texas at the time at dell and EMC was big at the time. And I thought, wow, you know, these, these are some really smart people and it pays a lot more than what I'm making. <laughs> and so I convinced my wife, who at the time we'd only been married uh, about three years. I got a connection into somebody that got me connected into somebody at BMC and I got a job as an inside sales rep. So I, I took a very large cut in pay and moved myself and my wife to Houston, Texas and started all over. It was really the beginning of many career pivots I've made in my time. And so I was an inside sales rep back in the day. You didn't have cool technology like outreach and you couldn't really learn from technologies like Gong. You had to literally make a hundred calls a day and yeah. send emails. But it taught me, uh, built upon my perseverance and grit. And then I got picked up after about seven months and put into a strategic account role and had one account and uh, ended up being the second rep in the world that year and then was promoted to transfer to Atlanta and promoted into management. And, and then my last role for about uh, three and a half, four years was, was what's on my LinkedIn profile, which is vice president of one of four vice presidents of sales inside of BMC. So it was a great journey.
1: It's funny to hear you say I'm younger than you. And even my generation of like when I was a BDR, I was making a hundred cold calls a day and 500 emails a day by hand. And at the time it wasn't clear if it was gonna be outreach or a company called Tout App, which is now I don't even know where they are. And so I would just see who was viewing my email more than once and pick up the phone and dial. And I was um, I was hanging out with a newly minted BDR going to, I can't remember where she was going. And she was complaining about how she sends out like 10 to 15 emails a day. And I'm like, 10. And I'm like, what about cold calls? She goes, we don't make cold calls. And I'm like, oh man, the world, the world has certainly changed. The other thing that struck me, what happened at Workbrain? You're CRO of freaking Okta right now. Did you pick wrong? Did you make the wrong decision? Like what, what did that look like at that point?
0: Yeah, it's an awesome question. So I love my time at BMC because you know we went from 500 million to 2 billion during that period of time, lots of acquisitions. I was super fortunate to be high potential. So I was I was developed professionally as a leader there, worked yep. with some incredible people. And it was strange because I got to kind of the seven and a half year, almost eight year mark. And I thought, oh, you know, I wonder if I'm being successful because of me or because of BMC. And I'm just going to go, I'm going to go do something else. And I want a seat at the table And I got recruited away to to Workbrain, which is in the human capital management space. So managing employee unions and hours and benefits, super complex sale and heavy services. And I chose that company without really thinking about what's important to me. And so the company, we ended up selling the company to Infor after 13 months for about $250 million. And the CEO and founder of Workbrain is actually the CEO of Ceridian today. So amazing, amazing executive. But what I realized was, you know, the fit for me was not ideal for what are my skills. And so I think I picked wrong for me. Great company and fortunately a great outcome. But it taught me a lesson of, you know, before you get into thinking about the next company or the next role, be really clear at, at what are the objective aspects for making a decision that make the, make it the right company for you. And so I've used that criteria now in every decision I've made since then that I didn't use when I chose to go work for Workbrain.
1: Would you be open to sharing maybe one or two of the things that weren't the right fit for you? Were those like execution oriented things, culture, leadership, market,
0: yeah, so for sure. So I always look at size of company matters, right? So for me, you know, I've operated in all sorts of different size companies. I love 750, maybe a billion to 3 billion. I can operate in 30 to 140, like I did at Apogee, but it's not my sweet spot. And mm. so knowing where you fit in stage of company matters a lot. Which is different than if you're going to do advisory work or board work, but if you're really going to be an operator, you know I had to understand where my skills suited me best, and that's that's the yep. first thing. The second part is, you know, what is it that you're selling? Like I love infrastructure, I love data, I love analytics, I love security. Workbrain was applications, and applications for me with a heavy services implementation ERP feel back then. That wasn't where I thrived. That's not what really gave me a ton of energy. And I didn't know that about myself because I was really never uh, reflective. And then I always look at the, the executive leadership team and the board tells you a lot about the company and what their motivations are and, and where they uh, thrive. And I didn't look at that as closely as I should have. Great, great executive team, great board. But for me, in that kind of alignment, it wasn't as strong as it, it needed to be.
1: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. All right, one more question on background stuff specifically. We had Harry Alt, the CRO of Data Stacks. and so you were at Data Stacks from 2015 to 19, and um, KP Portfolio Company. I wasn't around KP at the time, but I think that was a pretty good time for the company, if I'm not mistaken. Like that was a good run. Now. The irony is that the context with which Harry entered that organization and that we had our conversation was around the transition that the business needed to make from on-premise to cloud and kind of restructuring and reorganizing the next phase of growth. In 2019, had that started? Was it clear to you, was the writing on the wall that it was time for Steve to go figure something else out from a product perspective or whatever it might've been, we're not innovating?
0: Yeah. And if you look at DataStax growth, when I joined, we were about 40, a little less than 47 million. And when I left, we were about 135 and some change. And we had amazing growth. The challenge is, one, we were an open source. And my goodness, open source businesses are not all created equally. You know, MongoDB is open source, but it's a very different open source licensing model. And mm. So there's a lot of learning in the broader definition of open source. It's very nuanced in how you build those businesses effectively. The part that we didn't react quickly enough to is public cloud adoption and yep. cloud service, specifically for high-scale transactional databases like Cassandra and DataStax. With that, you know the challenge with open source is public cloud providers. Uh, they like to take up open source product and offer services, and so yeah. AWS did that and and really had an impact on our growth. And so yeah, when I when I started looking at the opportunity and realizing it was going to be another two to three year run, it, it was time for me to go do something differently. And they've done an amazing job. I mean, Chet Kapoor, who I worked for at Apogee, is now the CEO of DataStax, and he's done all the right things. In the last two years he's a stud
1: okay so the next question that i have is you have done three multi-billion hyper growth companies you've done two startups and your definition of a startup in the 20 to 30 million is a little different from mine but we'll call them startups nonetheless You've done open source businesses. You've done bottoms up, top down. You've done mid-sized businesses with Bluecoat, which was a really great run for you. You've done them in Dallas and Austin. You've done them all across the world. You keep reinventing your career in some way. I'll start with, why do you keep doing that?
0: That's a good question. I ask myself that often. <laughs> I always uh, tell people you know, when they're asking me, about uh, an opportunity or they're asking me to do board work or whatever the case may be. I, I always say, I'm not the playbook executive. I'm not gonna bring my domain experience and my playbook that I've used in 10 other companies. There's lots of people out there and they're, they're great executives, but that's, that's not me. Part of why I keep reinventing myself is one is I'm just curious by nature. And I think you have to be intellectually curious if you're gonna stay relevant. And if I hadn't continued to adapt As an example, if I was still thinking about the world like I did at BMC, I wouldn't be relevant. So part of that is Mm. curiosity. Part of that is maintaining my relevance in the marketplace. And part of it is just it's tech is super interesting if you let it be interesting and you're curious about that. So part of that is inherent to who I am. And then the other part of it is that I think you have to reinvent yourself and get different experiences because that's more valuable the companies, it's more valuable to boards, it's more valuable to employees, and it's more valuable to customers over time if you can continue to reinvent yourself and gain knowledge and experience.
1: It's funny because there is another side to that argument, which would say you were at BMC and then you were at Blue Coat kind of similar-ish type profile customers and let's just say blue coat, like you do a little bit of the security stuff. Like people would say, stay in the same industry because you have your network there. All of the leaders are going to stay in that same industry. All of your customers, you can go sell to them again. Your team is going to want to stay in that industry.
0: That's too easy. That's too easy. (laughs) Come on. I, I always view the world as, you know, the hard way is sometimes the fun way.
1: Well, and look to your point, sorry to interrupt, but like if you had stayed on prem, similar to how some of your organizations have stayed on prem, like similar to how DataStax or BMC may have, you may have also have been doing a turnaround of Steve when it was a little bit too late.
0: That's right. Yeah. And one thing you notice is that all those companies are different. I mean, the reason I went to Blue code is because it was 100% channel and I had never done channel before. Part of Workbrain was applications and services. Part of... Apogee was brand new cloud service, API management right in the middle of digital innovation. Datastax was open source. So yeah, it's a bit of pulling those things together, but you know what's what it's allowed me to do is really refine thinking about talent. You know BMC talent doesn't work at Workbrain. Workbrain talent doesn't work at Bluecoat. Bluecoat talent doesn't work at Apogee. So what is it that allows you as a leader to really define what's the right talent? that you need for the company at this stage of the company to get really good at that makes you a very powerful executive and high value to any company.
1: On the reinventing yourself thing, I think it sounds good. Like I also am very curious and I also like to take risk and and reinvent myself, but there's risk. And the risk is that you fail. The risk is that you do work brain. And obviously that worked out okay. But like The risk is that you just fall flat on your face, which is why a lot of people don't do it. Do you think that like, I don't know, kind of going back to my original question of watching your father fail in the way that he did, gave you permission to also go ahead and take that risk? And I assume you watched him reinvent himself in a lot of different ways, taking on a bunch of different companies.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I'd ask what's the risk, right? The inherent risk is you end up with a lot of one-year stints then you're unproven and you're then you're a risk to hiring. But I'll go back to the Workbrain experience. If I hadn't done Workbrain and BMC, and frankly, United Technologies, cause there's a lot of value in even what I learned there, I would be less valuable for Bluecoat. If I hadn't done Apogee and learned as much as I did from Chet Kapoor, I wouldn't have been as valuable at DataStack. So mm. it depends on how you define risk. Is risk you know, getting fired? Okay. Maybe. But to me, that's low risk. Is it not making any money? Yeah, that's risk. But inherently, if you're picking up experiences along the way, as long as you're picking well and you're not Mm -hmm. doing a bunch of one-year stints or two-year stints in a row, the risk is pretty low because of what you learn through the experience.
1: I went back home during COVID and I saw some of my old, old high school friends. And they said, Jubin, you've changed. And I'm like, no shit I've changed, you haven't. That's why we haven't seen each other in so long. And I guess maybe the essence of what I'm trying to say is that like, I think a big part of me reinventing the things that I do in my career come from changing who I am, not like in my identity and core, but like the ways that I do things and think about things. Are there any pillars or specific Steve things that you always remind yourself of as you do these transitions in your career that you lean on personally to enable that kind of movement seamlessly.
0: The first thing that comes to mind is that there's an answer to every problem, right? And so when I think about making these transitions, if you go in with the mindset that there is a solution to the problem, it does allow you to be open-minded and change. It's not the solution necessarily that you've had in the past. and It doesn't diminish the experience that you had in the past, but going in with a bit of an open mind, it allows me to continue to grow and evolve. The other part of it is that it does, particularly in go-to-market, it does still come down to three major pillars around customer centricity. You know, who are we after? Who buys mm-hmm. our stuff? What's the value we create? and what's the most effective and efficient way to get to those customers, routes to market. It comes down to people. You know, are we truly hiring and developing people and retaining them effectively, communicating, rewarding? And then it comes down to how are we operating the business in a sustainable and durable fashion? Like Those are core pillars that you can mm-hmm. apply to any business. How they're applied to a business is unique to that business's stage and, and business model. But those are some of the things that I, that I lean on in those transitions.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, so, Okta. I wanna ask you about a lot of things at Okta. Could you give the, like, for the audience that may not know the 30 second elevator pitch on, on what you do?
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. So we, we allow anyone to connect to any technology anywhere safely. That's what we do.
1: So I wanna get onto my whatever application. I go onto my computer. I authenticate from my phone. My phone pops up and says, are you in Chicago right now? I click yes, and it lets me through. I yeah, see
0: so you're an Okta user. That's the employee side. But also, when you when you log into your Lululemon account, yeah. that's going through Okta from a B to C perspective as well. Or if you log into MLB, it may not look like it, but that's actually the Okta Identity Cloud on the back end, authenticating who you really are.
1: Yeah, so this company is incredible. So. It has a $32 billion market cap. It's doing over a billion of revenue on about 30% year over year growth. And you just joined this insane rocket ship, right? Like it is, especially post COVID, it had an incredible accelerant, right? Because everyone bought all these SaaS applications, everyone rent remote, and all of a sudden everyone was buying Okta. So you came in with expectations and a stock price that are pretty damn high. I don't know, what's going through your head? Like, how did that happen? What was your decision-making process like?
0: Yeah, what's going through my head is like, giddy up, let's go. (laughs) I look at market trends and mega trends that are driving customer problems and opportunities. And then I look for companies who uniquely solve those. And when you look at what's happening in the market today between multi-public hybrid cloud adoption, when you look at digital innovation, in a B2C and a B2B world. And then you look at the the security landscape, specifically around zero trust, identity is at the core of those three mega trends. Like doing identity in a multi-public hybrid world is really hard. How you create unique and differentiated experiences through digital products, that's identity at the core. Identity and zero trust is going way beyond is it you or me? Now it's about application, is it the right application? It's about machine to machine. So those, those tailwinds, if you will, for any company that's leaning in to solve those problems are not going away anytime soon. The other part that I appreciate about Okta is, is we're the leader in the market and Todd and our board and the rest of our executive team are not slowing down. So you know, announcing that you're gonna spend six and a half billion dollars on Auth0, which was the number two cloud native provider in the customer identity space, Look, that's a gangster move, man. That's like somebody saying, we're not slowing down. We're gonna to continue to build an iconic company. So those, all of those things play into the ability to create an iconic company that's durable and sustainable in its growth. Now, I can't comment on the market cap size. Markets are funny in that way, but what I can comment on is that we've got a path to four billion that we announced to the street in the next four years and the market's there and we're the only major leader that's cloud native. So that to me is exciting because then I can work on the, all the other stuff that I don't have to worry about markets and products and customers and relevance. I can work yeah. on how do you really build a scale inside of a business?
1: Your first month on the job, they bought Auth0. I had the CRO of Auth0, Dave Wilner, on the show. And uh, that was a pretty good outcome for him. It turns out, and you know, okay, like agreed, you buy the second place player, whatever, right? I'm very, very fascinated by how the hell you're going to do this integration. Auth0, while it might sell a similar type of solution, it does so in a very different way, right? Okta is completely tops down. Auth0 sells to the developers. It's much more cloud flairy, if you will. Slack, et cetera, Atlassian. Thankfully, you can draw on previous experience having done some of this stuff before, but when you're integrating two companies of this size, and I've been parts of these types of integrations, it
0: is gnarly. What's going through your head? Oh, come on, it's not that gnarly. Well, listen, <laughs> the first, hey, the first thing, you know this, the first thing that really is a predictor of whether an acquisition integration is gonna work is company culture. Always. Like if the company cultures are so diametrically opposed and I could name off plenty that have been in the past that don't go well, it's just hard. And the one thing that you would find inside of Okta with the Auth0 team is we're very similar. I mean, Eugenio, who's the CEO of Auth0 and Todd McKinnon, our CEO, they're a lot alike. And therefore, their fingerprints on the two company cultures are very similar And so it's been like two families that didn't really know each other coming together and all focusing on the same thing. We both have the same value of love our customers. We all focus on getting things done. So that matters. So it gives us a huge, huge foundation. The other part is, is that we recognize that we're satisfying two different parts of the customer identity market, and it's not overlapping. So now it's about how do we make sure that we continuing to accelerate the large developer community and developer motion of all zero while continuing to maintain the market need for much more of a top-down centralized identity approach for customer identity. Mm -hmm. But we're not the first ones to do it. I mean, if you look at what the public cloud providers have been doing for a long time, they are focused on that developer motion. You know, Amazon calls them the builders. They have an enterprise sales force that is also coming behind after those companies have built MVPs and are using the products from the developers and they're doing an enterprise motion. So the buyer journey, if you think about the buyer journey for a customer identity sale, the buyer journey is the same length for Okta as it is for Auth0. When the Auth0 buyer journey engages sales, it's later. Mm -hmm. They engage us earlier. So you just have to understand that buyer journeys are different and depending on where the customer is entering that journey with a developer motion or a top down is how you drive your selling motion and your customer engagement model.
1: So Auth0, I think does about 40% of their revenue internationally. And I think Okta doesn't do nearly that. I think it's a majority here in the, in the States. Do you feel like this gives you a little bit of a lead into going international?
0: It does. I mean, we do have a large footprint internationally. You're right. As a relative percentage of revenue, it's less than 20%, which we publicly disclose. This does definitely give us a larger footprint. Fortunately, we're in a lot of the same countries and can accelerate that growth. I know
1: a bunch of people at Okta. I know a bunch of reps. And uh, so obviously in preparation for this, I started asking him some questions. What are you nervous about? What do you think of Steve? What do you think of the acquisition? And there was a very consistent theme that was that people were very nervous about change. (laughs) I kind of laughed because it was such a rep-centric view of the world where they have their comp plans and their quotas, they have their territories, and they can feel all of this change with a new leader, et cetera, around them and maybe I'll take that one step further and I'm gonna put you on the hot seat here. You mentioned that you, when you were at BMC, you wanted to know if you were a product of your environment or if you were truly good. And as I thought about these people thinking about that question, I guarantee you that's what's going through their head, which is a little bit of like, we've had this run, Okta has been killing it, and now there's gonna be new blood in here, new reps, new products. And I've ridden this tide a little bit. What do you think about that? I'll just leave it open-ended.
0: Yeah, well, first thing I'd say is relax. <laughs> 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 right. I mean, uh, look, we've all we've all been in these situations. And I think part of what what I've tried to express to the organization is because I've been in startups, I've been in mid-sized companies, and as you highlighted, this is my third billion dollar hyper growth company. I know what it looks like at different stages. And I'm not interested in disparaging the past. I'm sure uh, if you asked Harry and if you said, hey, you know, what'd you what'd you experience at DataStax?" you'd probably come up with all these things that I I didn't do right. Right. Because it's a nature of the transition of the size and a different fresh yep. set of eyes. So I'm never one to sit there and go, ah, oh, I can't believe we made that decision or I can't believe we we did that in the past. Because look, you make the best decisions you can at the time based on the data you have and based on what the needs of the business are. And so we're just going through a very natural transition that's almost textbook in many ways. You know, as you bust through that billion dollar wall, it's similar to busting through the wall at 10 and 25 and 50 Mm -hmm. and 100 and 250, but the challenges are different. All right, so now when you're trying to do scale at this size, the problem statements are different and we have to continue to evolve. I have to evolve as a leader at a billion that's different than at three and four billion. So we're all gonna change in, in that continuous change, but it doesn't mean it has to be scary. And it doesn't diminish anything that's been done in the past. But at the end of the day, you know, this is all about people and us working together to win in the market. And if you can't do that together, then you don't really have a company. So that's how I think about these things. And, and what I would say to that, that rep who is contemplating their future, Hang tight. We're going to we're going to be okay and it's going to be another fun ride in this next chapter.
1: Yeah, I agree. I would be in it for the ride if I was them. Okay, speaking of people. By the way, you look the same from 97, I think is when I watched the video to it wasn't that long. It was uh 2007. Nonetheless, it was uh, almost 15 years ago. You don't look that different. And uh, it was a video of a testimonial that you gave at Blue Coat. And it was all about talent. Like you were really talking about, I can't remember, who was it for? Remind me.
0: That was uh, force management. I'm- force management.
1: Yes, yes. And they're actually come up a lot in this show. But anyway, you're giving a testimonial, force management comes in and they start to define and identify the top characteristics of what great looks like at your given organization. So you can go hire for that. And one of the things that you said was that the biggest challenge we had because of our rapid growth was successfully hiring the right people. And we had a lot of tenured individuals. How do we develop and train them for the long term? The question that you asked yourself were, who are our future leaders? Who are the high potential folks in my organization? And who are the leaders on the bench that we promote from within? Were you and are you asking yourself a very similar set of questions 15 years later?
0: Oh, yeah there's no doubt. I mean, there's a couple of principles that have stayed true and some that have evolved a bit, right? I mean, I I believe that you you have to develop an excellence profile that incorporates uh, core DNA. HR always hates it when I call it DNA. So we'll call it core competencies, but let's just call it things that you can't teach, right? And that is what makes an individual sustainable in an organization long-term And then there's experience and background that you can teach if they don't have it. And then there's core skills that every role has to have that you can also teach. But that DNA, you really have to make sure every single person has that core DNA, because that's the ethos and the culture of who your people are. And it's also what enables you to continue to evolve over time. That's at the people front. That's all the way from an individual contributor all the way up to me. Mm. You have to really focus on that DNA, and then the experience, background, and skills are different by role. That enables you then to to really look at the secondary piece of it, which is that leadership pipeline. If I have 1,000 people in my organization today, I'll have 3,000, almost 4,000 people in four years. It's a lot of leadership, and continually hiring from the outside is hard. There's risk in culture. There's risk in fit. It doesn't give people the opportunities internally to grow and develop and and truly be a destination company. And so you've got to be thoughtful in what's that long-term leadership pipeline you're going to need to fulfill that as much as possible internally as well as supplement it with external. What
1: DNA did you look for at that time that you can't teach? And since then, has your thinking changed or evolved?
0: Yeah, it is very dependent on the company and the size, right? So part of the exercise I go through whenever I join is I pull leaders together and I say, here's here's kind of the, the library, if you will, of DNA that are applicable generally to most companies. Let's decide on what the five core DNA that really, really matter for us. Think about your people that have been the most successful and think about what's going to be needed in the next four or five years. Which ones resonate? And so it does vary, in some cases. I would say that the ones that are generally consistent with where I go is intellectual curiosity. You can teach people as much as you want through enablement. You have great enablement, but if you're not intellectually curious around what's happening in the market and your customers, you're just not relevant. You're not a value add. The things that are that are relevant for a hyper growth billion dollar company is adaptability. We used to come from a world where you talked about change curve and getting people through the, the disillusionment and commitment, all that stuff's gone. Like continuous change is just continuous change. So if you don't have the ability to be adaptable and process that change and then execute on that change, then you kind of start getting left behind. And then for Okta, humility is something incredibly important to us, which is you know core to, to who we are, and then growth mindset and enterprising are the other core DNA that we really, really look for and interview for.
1: Interview for. Can you tell me how you uncover these qualities? I think sometimes it could be quite tough. Like, let's pick adaptability.
0: Yeah, because these are the things that don't show up on the paper. Right. Right. So adaptability, you can generally look at in career pivots. That's also, you pick up intellectual curiosity. If you looked at my background, there's no way that I could have moderate success throughout my career by moving to different size companies, technologies, et cetera. That shows intellectual curiosity and adaptability. But what I would say is when you made the change from X company to Y company, describe to me what you had to go through in changing your mindset, how you had to think about processes and approach, what had the biggest impact on you and how did you go about processing that change and then executing on it. And what was the hardest part for you?
1: I like that. The way that I test for it is, what was the last thing that you were interested in? How did you go about learning about it? Literally, what platforms, like what mediums, like what people, what books, what YouTube, what YouTube videos? And follow that yellow brick road all the way back, if you can. How about humility? How do you test for humility?
0: You know, humility is a hard one because I think in many ways, life humbles you. And so asking about life experiences and where people have faced adversity and what they learned from it, I think in many times will show you a person's true humility. I also think it, it comes out with people who have wild success. I look for people who don't talk about their success. When they run around telling me how wildly successful they've been in other places, that's insecurity. That's not that's not humility.
1: Hmm. And enterprising. I think enterprising. Is that a euphemism for like entrepreneurial?
0: A little bit. Enterprising is much more about how do you garner the resources effectively of the entire company. So like resourceful. Yeah, but in a way that allows you to actually build an enterprise and build build a sustainable business. Right. So people who throw every resource at every opportunity. That's not enterprising, that's just wasteful. Mm. So really asking someone to describe a sales process that they went through and what parts of the business they leveraged and at what point in the sales cycle did they leverage them and what value were they trying to drive from that interaction from that group with that customer at that point of the sale.
1: Are there any things that you test to avoid? As an example, one of the questions that I like to ask is, what are you most proud of? And the answer that I don't want to hear is, and I, that's all I leave it. Personal, professional, doesn't matter. What I don't want to hear is the big deal that they brought to the table and closed. I want to test away from that. I don't want that answer. Any others that you think of that you,
0: you're having me give away all my great interview questions. Like candidates are going to listen to this and then, uh, they're going to come with, I can't t- I can't tell you that, but yeah, there's certainly things that I look for. I do have some really specific questions I ask that always solicit a, well, that's a really good question, you know, which means people just need time to think. But no, I'm I'm definitely looking for some of the anti-patterns of the areas that we just talked about. Okay,
1: story for another time maybe. The other question that I have for you is in developing people. And again, this was, uh, I'm just picking off some quotes here from your testimonial. You said it's such a missed opportunity. And that you personally benefited from getting invested in development so maybe we use that in the context of leaders that are on your bench a how do you identify who those leaders are and b what are some easy steps that you take to let them know that you're going to be developing them and then actually doing so
0: it personally impacted my life in a very positive way if you had asked me back in 1998 when i was making 100 calls a day you know, will you be CRO of you know of a multi-billion-dollar company someday? I say, yeah. I, I don't. I don't see that. <laughs> and I was really fortunate in my in my career to have several people, whether it was Bob Beecham, the CEO of BMC, or Alex Schutman was an incredible boss and mentor, or Tom Schodorf. I mean, these are people that saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, and then really invested and helped and stretched me and and helped discover. Probably some talents I didn't realize existed. So I'm always looking for those people. I think the, the most important part that we lose sometimes is development isn't just about promotion. It's not about the next opportunity. It could be a lateral move, it could be a different assignment, but it all comes down to what is the individual's goals, you know, long term? What are their current abilities? What's the perceptions? And then, and then what are the skills necessary for the role? Like, how do you think about that? And so for when people tell me, you know, when there may be a BDR saying, oh, I want to have your job someday, the first thing I say is why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you've really got to get into under, uncover the, the personal aspects of what you want to achieve in your personal life and in your professional life and where your motivations lie. So I'm always looking for people who want to grow is probably the better way to say it, not people who are just wanting to take the next job. There's certainly people there, but I want people to feel like they're growing in everything that they do, whether that's a promotion or not.
1: Would you say that feeling of leadership development, watching someone do and see things in themselves that they didn't have, is one of the things that gives you like the most back in your career?
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: So... This is such an unfair question. Have you ever, obviously knowing how much that means to you, right? Has there been a moment where you were positive that there was a leader in the reins that you were going to put out ahead of their skis? They were going to be so successful and they failed. Like, has that happened before? And did it feel like, it must've felt like you were failing.
0: Yeah, for sure. The development is a two-way street. I go back to... Development starts with self-awareness and self-reflection, right? And I can't provide self-awareness to an individual. And so where I probably missed the mark the most is where I, where I misread the level of self-awareness an individual had. And I'm incredibly self-aware, which allows me to continue to develop even today as a leader, is I know what I'm good at. I'm, I'm very thankful for feedback from whomever whether that's an individual in the organization or my boss or a peer, where I've missed it is where that self-awareness and value and feedback isn't inherent in the person and I thought it was.
1: Are there things that you do now that you've changed around your communication style to support that incubation of self-awareness? Like self-awareness I think can be developed and I do think it happens through communication, like very, very candid communication. I don't know. Are there any things that you've changed or done?
0: Well, I mean, there's a couple of things is that you're right. I mean, self-awareness is absolutely learned if you have a desire to learn. And I think that, you know, I was told early on in my career, and it's still feedback I get, which is Steve asks our opinion, but then he doesn't really want to hear our answer. And it's really because I come from the lens of I want to debate. And so I vigorously debate, and then it appears I don't want to listen. So, you know, I actually got this from Billy Bosworth. He taught me the, uh, the hashtag. He's like, look, it's hashtag selling, hashtag collaborating, or hashtag telling. And so you'll find in many cases, I'll send an email and say, hey, I'm hashtag selling, like I've got an idea here, but I want you to push back, or I'm hashtag telling, like there's no debate, let's move. Or I'm hashtag collaborating, like I have no idea, just give me your feedback and we're gonna work on this together. So that creates that self-awareness that of who I am and how my style can come across at times. And so I've propped it up with hashtags to help understand, make sure my motivations are understood clearly.
1: And so it's a signal of your tone and the way that it should be interpreted in that email.
0: Yeah, that's my intent.
1: I like that. Damn it, I want to keep going. I can't, I can't keep you past the hour. Steve, thank you. I am really grateful for your time. This was awesome. I wrap all these the same. What does the word grit mean to you? And how have you or your teams applied it?
0: Yeah. Well, grit for sure is perseverance. It's never giving up and it's never doing it alone. That's how I think about grit.
1: Is Okta hiring? If so, to get to $4 billion, what do you need?
0: I need unstoppable people. Absolutely unstoppable people. And yes, we're hiring. I have over 150 positions open just in my organization. So come join us.
1: If you're listening and you're unstoppable, what's the best way to get a
0: hold of Steve? Oh well, see, I'm a hard, I'm hard to get a hold of. <laughs> Contact you? No, I'm kidding. I think you know we have probably four or five hundred people apply for every role. So persistence and connections into the company are the best way. But if you really want to get to me, you have to probably get to me from somebody who knows me. I got a lot of lot of demands.
1: Oh great, here we go. My inbox is about to be flooded. <laughs> um, all right, Steve, I appreciate you. Thank you for the time.
0: Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for the time as well.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.